Hey everybody, this is Chuck Marone. Before we get started today, I want to let you know that we have three open positions. If you want to work for Strong Towns, now is the time. We've got three open positions. If you go to strongtowns.org slash employment, we have an open position for a staff writer. We need someone to come in and help us do some amazing articles. Uh, we also need someone to do video work for us. We finally are going to add a full-time video person to our organization. We've got a real unique and interesting process we're going to use to uh, to identify just the right person for us, if you think that might be you. And we also need someone to do some project coordination work for us. We're about to launch two huge initiatives. I'm going to come and tell you about those in a future episode. And we need someone to help us coordinate things across our growing team. These initiatives are going to involve a lot of people in a lot of different places, and we need someone who's really well organized. If any of these sound like you, go to strongtowns.org employment. We don't ask for a cover letter. We don't ask for a resume. We don't ask for references. All we want is an email address from you. And if you get started in our, our employment process, we're going to send you some questions. We're going to ask you to fill them out. And we use that, a very anonymous process, to try to figure out, can you do the job or not? We're not interested in your background, your pedigree, your GPA, what college you went to. What we're interested is whether or not you can do this job. And uh, that has given us a, a very interesting staff full of highly competent people who uh, uh, maybe wouldn't have been the top pick in any other organization, but were our top picks and for good reason. Join our team. We'd love to have you. Strongtowns.org slash employment. On with the show. You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. everybody. This is Chuck Marone with Strong Towns. Welcome back to the Strong Towns podcast. <laughs> I've had this podcast on my list of ones to do for a long time. And I've, I've held off uh, because I recognize that emotions were very raw and that uh, it was tough for me to talk about it in terms that were introspective. And I want to be introspective on this podcast. I, I think that I'm best when I'm that way. I'm worst when I'm full of fire and brimstone. That's not the way I want to be. Today, I want to talk to you about subsidiarity. And I want to talk to you about this thing that I've long experienced at city halls around the country, this notion that the customer is always right, or that the job of the city staff is, is customer service, or that we somehow need to have an ethic at city hall uh, that what we need to do is be focused on uh, serving the people in a kind of retail-esque customer service kind of model. I want to contrast those two, subsidiarity versus a customer service mindset. And, and let me, because many of you have probably not heard of the term subsidiarity, let me define it at the top before we get into the, the story I want to tell you. Subsidiarity is this idea that it, it matters less what decision is made than who makes the decision. It matters less what decision is made than, than who makes the decision. A lot of people simplify 
subsidiarity down to this idea that a decision should be made at the lowest level that it can competently be made. Uh, Thomas Jefferson had some similar insight, you know, about people making decisions for themselves and not having the government interfere. The, the subsidiarity at its heart is not an anti-government insight. Uh, what it is an insight of is empowerment. How do we use the systems that we have to make good decisions, to empower people to make good decisions, and to have those decisions made at a place where they are most representative of the people that they impact. I think the best way to understand subsidiarity is with the chicken problem. Andres Dewani was the one who first gave me this, the idea of the chicken problem. Who should decide whether backyard chickens should be allowed or not? The answer to that is that the people directly affected should decide, the people in the neighborhood. And so whether or not chickens are allowed in a neighborhood is really a block level problem. It's really a problem that should be decided at the block level. It shouldn't be decided at a city level. It shouldn't be decided at a regional level. We shouldn't have state legislation on whether or not you can have backyard chickens. Backyard chickens is something that should be decided at a local level. When we look at the decision to have backyard chickens or not, a lot of people will say, well, well Chuck, my neighbors and I don't agree on things. We're not going to agree. I, I'm going to want backyard chickens. And they're going to say, no, you, you can't have backyard chickens. And then the default is that I, I don't get it. And that's not how subsidiarity works. In a system of subsidiarity, the role of the next higher level of government in this case would be to assist in making that decision. In other words, the role of a city in a backyard chicken dispute would be to offer assistance on helping them make that collective decision. It's a very strange thing for us to think of in terms of American government, because in American government today, what happens is if two neighbors can't make a decision, we do like a King Solomon thing where we say, all right, city council, you we can't agree, you decide it. And I think we can all see the level of dysfunction that this creates, right? We all are familiar to one degree or another with the yimby nimby conversations. The idea that every little neighborhood dispute needs to be resolved by a city council or a regional board. We've lost the capacity in many ways to talk to each other, to work things out, to be neighbors. And from a strong town standpoint, none of this project works unless we are neighbors to each other. None of this project works. Cities don't work where we can't be neighborly. The trend away from subsidiarity, the trend to centralize all decision-making, to take power away from local neighborhoods, to have those decisions made someplace else. And, and I'm going to say this, and I'm going to, you know, there's a lot of the Yimby people right now that are mad at me because they, you know, want the state to be making decisions on what housing should be built in what neighborhood and all that. I'm going to include the opposite side of the equation, right? Not just taking the decision-making authority away from places, but also taking the responsibility for those decisions away from them, right? We've, we've enfeebled our neighborhood dialogue in, in many, many ways. Subsidiarity says that decisions that can be made at the neighborhood level should be made at the neighborhood level. And the role then of the city 
would be to assist in making those decisions, assist the parties, almost like a mediator in reaching some type of conclusion, not a stalemate. Harder than it sounds in our current context, I understand, but a vastly more effective way to govern. My local city code, like many city codes, has small elements of subsidiarity in it. But we have this overriding ethic of customer service, of the idea of assistance being not assist people in being neighborly or assist people in working together, but assist people in getting their permit you know, very, very quickly. How do we get things in and out the door? How do we provide really good customer service? How do we have someone sitting there with a smile when you walk in the door and be very, very helpful along the way? I think this is the wrong mindset. And if your local government has the mindset of customer service, a retail-esque mindset of customer service, you're actually not recognizing who your customer is. You're not recognizing that you don't work for individual property owners. You work on behalf of the community as a whole. You work on behalf of the entire community. Let me tell you the story that I want to tell you. I'm obviously very close to this and it's very personal and the emotions are a little bit raw. I'm going to try to do this in as dispassionate way as I can. My wife and I used to live, it's funny because I've been beat up a little bit on Twitter of all places uh, about this lately. Um, do you know that he used to live in a five acre lot? Yeah, I used to live on a five acre lot in the middle of nowhere. I, my wife and I, when we got married, when we were 22, back in 1995, we built a house halfway between where we worked on a lot in the middle of the woods. And then they built a golf course around us. And we lived for the next 15, 16 years on a golf course in the middle of nowhere. Some of the earliest financial analysis I did for Strong Towns, I did on my own. I mean, I did before Strong Towns. I did them on my own road. I wrote a book, Confessions of a Recovering Engineer, not because I was born thinking the things that I do today, but because reaching where I am today was a, a long evolutionary process in my thinking where I changed what I thought about many things. Um, largely because my the rational part of my brain started to deal with the contradictions that I was seeing all around me in my professional work as an engineer and my professional work as a planner. And so my wife and I moved from this five-acre lot in the woods into the middle of the city of Brainerd, my hometown, the the city that uh, I grew up in. I grew up actually on a farm out on the edge of the city, but I identify as being from Brainerd. That was where all my friends were in the neighborhoods in town. My grandmother lived there. My mom grew up in, in Northeast Brainerd. I went to school there from grade school all the way on. So I got bussed into town. Brainerd is the is my city, right? It's, it's where I went to the movie theaters, where we went out to eat, where we went shopping. It was Brainerd. And I live now right in the middle of the old historic neighborhood of Brainerd. I'm going to say this and I don't want to throw my wife under the bus because my wife is uh, not just a wonderful person, but very, very supportive. The one hesitation that she had moving into the city was, would we get along with our neighbors? One of the things you get living on a five-acre lot in the middle of nowhere is absence of tension with your neighbors. If you read my first book, Strong Towns, 
uh, you got to the last chapter and also recognized that there are downsides to not knowing your neighbors. But one of the upsides is the marketing brochure of relative isolation. We lived for 15 plus years on this lot and literally did not know any of our neighbors. If you're into that kind of thing, if you like that kind of isolation, if you like that kind of privacy, which my wife and I are both kind of introverted people and enjoy a certain amount of privacy, that's the marketing brochure, right? Like that's what you're selling in a place like that. And she was nervous about the idea that we wouldn't like our neighbors. And because of my work here, there's also other personal things. And then also I'm going to add into it just to make sure that the experience that my family had in moving into the middle of the city was as positive as it could be. I made a point of getting to know all of our neighbors and on being with really good terms with all of our neighbors. I think I've talked on here before about the couple who used to live next to us. The man passed away. The, the woman now lives in an elderly facility for people with Alzheimer's. So they have not been there for a couple of years now. But when we moved in, they were just so kind and generous. Um, we used to race each other to see who could snow blow the other sidewalks. And he would get up earlier than me and do it. And I would sometimes go out late at night and, and do it. Uh, just so I could beat him. We would do those kind of things. It was almost a race to see who could be the most neighborly. I genuinely have really good neighbors and I've gotten to know all of them. And while it's not been easy always, I have found that if I smile, if I uh, go out of my way to say hi, if I put on a positive face, that all goes a, a long, long ways. And so I would say that I, I have very good relationships with all of my neighbors, except <laughs> the one house right next to me sold a couple years ago. Uh, if you're friends with me on Facebook, you probably saw me trying to get you to move there. I was lobbying very hard because the house sat on the market for about six months. And it was the middle of the pandemic. It was 2020. Um, I think it went on the market in like April of 2020, so really bad timing. But I tried to get a friend to move in there couldn't entice, uh, for whatever reason, I don't know you people, Brainerd is a beautiful city, uh, couldn't entice any of you to move to uh, Brainerd and live the good life as my neighbor. I even promised a Christmas cookie tray. I promised uh, time sitting on the porch, just shooting the breeze. I promised all kinds of things to people. I, I said I had babysitters for people with kids um, <laughs> and uh, couldn't get anyone to move in. In August of 2020, all of a sudden, the for sale sign came down and someone moved in, uh, moved in very quickly. And we went over, introduced ourselves, said hi. My neighbor at the time, a, a single woman uh, with a daughter, we found out later had gone through uh, recently a, a traumatic experience, was a very shy person. We weren't sure if the shyness was uh, related to just the pandemic, right? Like we want to keep our distance or other things. Let me, without getting too personal, just say that we started off with a lot of compassion for this person. And I think today still try to muster as much compassion as we can and understanding because this is someone who's had a little bit of a difficult time, especially recently. So this new neighbor moves in in the middle of the pandemic. We speak to them literally once and then don't see them anymore. 
they tend to be people who keep to themselves, uh, who stay inside. We quite literally don't run into them in any of the places that we go. I walk to work and walk by the house every day, uh, did not really see them or interact with them, and went, you know, quite a long time. That first winter when they were there, I would snow blow their sidewalks. I'm not trying to say that like a heroic thing. I just did. I'm out there with a big snowblower anyway. It takes like five extra minutes to do theirs. Not a big deal. I would do that. It's all good. Just trying to be a helpful guy. At some point, and I really don't know when, and it really doesn't matter, someone else moved in the house. And this someone else uh, was, how do we say this, a little less friendly. It's hard to be a little less friendly than non-existent, right? But a little bit abrasive, right? The kind of person who, you know, they see you, uh, not only doesn't wave, but kind of gives you like a, a look of disgust. The kind of person who, you know, if they see you coming, walking down the street, would actually like pull across the sidewalk and, and park. Uh, they've got a driveway that actually crosses the sidewalk, the only one on the entire side of the street with a, a, a driveway that comes onto the, across the sidewalk. And we just park in the middle of the sidewalk for like, reasons I don't really know. Just a little bit unnecessarily antagonistic. And, you know, there's some culture things. I'm, uh, you know, I live in a small town in the middle of uh, Minnesota. Um, we are, uh, should I say this or not? I'm not gonna, I don't want to stereotype my community because I, I think it's a beautiful place and I love it. But let me, let me say this by way of explaining what I'm going to explain next. I live in a relatively politically blue neighborhood in a very politically red area. I remember the, the very first year I was there in election, there was this one person running for office and she had the blue yard signs, right? Like the DFL, Democrat farm labor yard signs. And they were everywhere. And I just assumed, like for me, like I was looking around, I'm like, wow, this candidate has a ton of support. And I assumed she was going to get like 60% plus of the vote. Well, she got like 35%. And the uh, the red candidate uh, in the neighborhoods that I was no longer driving through and no longer walking through and no longer living in or living near voted overwhelmingly for her opponent. You get in these little bubbles, right, in places like this. Let's just say that the new neighbor did not fit the uh, the kind of vibe of the neighborhood. So very large truck, lots of stuff. Lots of stuff all over the yard. Uh, very, very kind of different approach. And on top of it, a little bit uh, antagonistic. I'm going to acknowledge here that when I started at the beginning saying, I try to be a really good neighbor. I, I try to be a good neighbor. I want to be. I, I don't always succeed. And I don't always live up to the ideals that I would like. And I, I will acknowledge in retrospect, not being very warm to the, these particular neighbors. They didn't make it easy, but making it easy should not be a prerequisite to being uh, warm yourself. I think if I had it to go back and do over again, I would make more effort uh, to be more generous than I was. That being said, this past summer, so this would be the really the second f full summer that the one was there, the first full summer that they were both there with, with the, the young girl as well. We were sleeping in our house we were sound asleep and all of a sudden the fire alarms went off in the house. I jumped up out of bed. I could smell smoke in my room. 
I looked over and I could see on the wall what was like a reflection of flames. And my first thought was, oh my God, the neighbor's house is on fire. I jumped up, I ran to the window, and that's not what it was. What it was is right underneath my window. So bedroom window faces the neighbor's property. About, I don't know, 10 feet or so is a small little, small little fence. Uh, the kind that's just posts with like two cross rods. So more decorative than anything else. There's a little fence there. And right on the other side of that fence was a massive fire with tons of smoke coming up right into our window. I didn't mention, but this was at like two in the morning. So this wasn't, um, you know, 10 at night or 9.30 at night or midnight. This was two in the morning. And, you know, the fire continued. I mean, I got the alarm shut off, shut the windows, got the kids back to bed, everything. This was the, one of the first times that I had seen my neighbors outside in a long, long time. And... I don't know. It was weird. It was strange. I just kind of moved on with life. I was a little bit worried that the fire wasn't going to be under control. So I kind of sat up for a while and kept an eye on things. But eventually about four o'clock, they shut it down and went to bed and I fell asleep and everything was fine. A couple days later, I left. I had to go on an extended trip to California. And when I was gone, again, kind of stuff in the middle of the night. My kids are in school activities. This was during the summer, but they have got dance practice all summer and they got to get up at like five in the morning or 5.30 in the morning, some like ridiculous hour. My neighbors were up at one o'clock, two o'clock in the morning, the huge construction lights on, halogen lights, building a fence in their yard. I, I said they have a little fence. Their backyard is my side yard. So they're on a the corner. I'm in the middle of the street. Their backyard is my side yard. They were building a fence around their backyard, essentially. And my kids were texting me. Um, it was 11, 11.30 at night out in California. So it was like 1, 1.30 in the morning back home. Dad, can you do something, please? They're keeping me up. They're being loud. They're out there with drills, you know, zzz, zzz, like drilling. They're sawing. It's the middle of the night. I got home and I went over to talk to them. They weren't around. And I could have waited until they came around. I could have waited until they got home and had a conversation with them, and I didn't. I think this was a mistake that I made. But what I did is I put a little note together and said, hey, kids are complaining about you guys being up. I was gone. I see you're working on a fence. Could you please not work after 10 o'clock? And by the way, you might want to get a permit for that fence because the city's going to come around and you know, you're going to get in trouble. We're a pretty high profile street. The fence you're building is, is clearly not, I, did, I don't think I wrote this, but I'm like, I knew they didn't have a permit because the fence they were building did not meet the fence ordinance. And I happen to know what the fence ordinance is because not only uh, did I build a fence, but I served on the planning commission and wrote ordinances around cities for years. And I, I, I knew what the Brayer ordinance said. So I printed it out for them. I highlighted a couple sections. I could see where you could interpret this as someone being kind of a jerk, right? Dropping off a note on your door when you were gone. It would have been better if I had spoken to them personally. I didn't. But I did ask them to, to not do this. The response I got was a little angry. And I cut them some slack for that, right? 
I got a kind of a nasty text from uh, the one neighbor. Hey, we got a permit. We know what we're doing. Stop, you know, messing with us. We'll put the permit out so you can see it. And, you know, I don't know what your kids were saying, but we're not making any noise. Da, 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 da. So, all right, we'll move on. And it seems like we reached maybe an understanding that she did say, you know, we won't work after 10 o'clock if that's what matters to you. And okay, we're, we're good. We'll just let things kind of calm down. Then all of a sudden, one Saturday, I think it was a Saturday, it might have been a Sunday, we were sitting at the kitchen table, and all of a sudden, the guy who lives next door is standing in my yard, building a fence on my property, basically putting up slats. He's standing a few feet outside my dining room window as we're eating, and he is drilling slats to the fence on my property. It feels weird saying that because I'm not a, you know, stay off my lawn kind of person. But I do know what the rules are. I, I do know what the regulations of the city are. And the regulations of the city are, if you are going to build a fence on a property line, you have to get permission from the neighbor. And I'm going to talk about why in a minute. It gets a subsidiarity thing. But let me just finish the story so he's standing out there building a fence. My wife is like, what should we do? Should we go out and tell him to leave? Like, should we call the police? Like, what do we do? You know, at this point, we'd had this kind of history of a little bit of antagonism. And I said, look, I don't want to fight with anybody. I don't want to argue with anybody. The fence is clearly illegal. The city is going to make them tear it down. They don't have a permit to do this. The city would never give them a permit to do this. I'll call the city on Monday and we'll get it taken care of. I did that. And guess what? They had a permit. <laughs> the city sent the permit over to me. And th this is where I think maybe I'll do the first little interlude about the customer service mindset versus the subsidiarity mindset. The city's ordinance says that if you're going to build a fence along the property line, you have to have permission from the neighbor. That permission is not about is the neighbor okay with this or not? The permission is really about, do you agree on the lot line? Why is it important that you agree on the lot line? Well, in a neighborhood like mine, and in most of the neighborhoods that people listen to this live in, these neighborhoods are very old. My neighborhood was platted in 1871. There's no survey monuments out there at all. There's nothing out there. When I moved in to the property, I checked. I've got a brother-in-law who's a surveyor. I used to work for a survey company. I ran my own firm that worked with lots of surveyors around. I called and I said, is there any control out here? No, there's no control out here. Are there any monuments out here? No, nobody's got record of any monuments out there. I didn't expect that they did, but I wanted to check. There's nothing out there. So if there's no survey pins out there, how do you know where your lot line is? And it's important to understand the process that you would go through in determining that. Let's say that, let's say that there was a fight about the lot line. And let me just preview coming attractions here. There's a fight over the lot line now. But let's just say there's a fight over the lot line. How would that fight be resolved? Or a dispute over the lot line? How would that dispute be resolved? Well, what you would do in a situation like this is you would go out 
try to find any old monuments. It's very unlikely that you're going to find any. In the absence of them, you start looking for what surveyors would call evidence of where the lots would be. One of the best pieces of evidence that you have is where the center of the roadway is. So you look at the curbs, you kind of line up the curbs, you say that the curbs are centered in the middle of the right-of-way, you would measure uh, in, find the center of the roadway, then go out to the edge of the right-of-way. You would use that to kind of determine the area of the block. So you would start with basically an area that's defined by the curb, uh, the back of the street. And you would use that area then to essentially allocate what each person's lot would be in an ideal world. Let me give you an example. Let's say that the plat says there's 400 foot lots and you go out and you measure and between the curbs and all that, you measure it out and there's only 396 feet of land area. What happens is then is everybody's lot is now 99 feet wide. That's what it would be like in reality. So you would establish, in a sense, a new set of drawings or a new certificate of survey that would lay out what this block would be based on the proportions, not that are in the plat, but are actually there in real life. Then, and I used to do this, I interned at a survey company and we did all these things when I was an undergrad. You go in and say, all right, where does everybody have their lot lines? Where does everybody believe their lot line is? And in my particular block, every single property, every single one has a fence line. I have a fence line with both of my neighbors. I have a fence line in the back. All of my neighbors also have fence lines in their backyard. So we have, in a sense, an agreed on set of lines that everybody's been using for a, a long, long, long time way longer than I've been there, going back decades. Everybody has established fence line. And so what you do is you would write down, uh, here's where the line is based on, the, based on the map and the readjustment. Here's where the line is based on where everybody thinks it is. And we're gonna describe the difference between the two and do what is called a quit claim deed to transfer property back and forth. So at the end of the day, when the certificate is filed, everybody owns what they think they own. Now, let's say we got to the end of that and there was still a dispute and someone said, I'm not going to sign a quit claim deed. I'm not going to sign the certificate of survey. I'm not going to participate in this process. I'm going to insist on whatever the survey said allocated out. I want my 99 foot wide lot and uh, I don't care where the lot lines ever were established. Well, what would happen then is you would have an imminent domain claim. I'm sorry, not an imminent domain. You would have a, oh my gosh, why am I forgetting the word right now? Basically, you've been using the property uh, in this way for a long time and you would take that to court and a judge would give you the property that you've been using for that excessive period of time. I, why am I not thinking of, it will come to me as soon as this podcast is done. <laughs> it's late at night. It's been a long day. So when we look at my property and my neighbor's property, where we have a long established fence line in between, it's very clear where the lot line is. And so what the city wants or what's in the interest, again, of the community is to have everyone agree on where those lot lines are. In other words, have no disputes over the lot line. Let's all agree where it is. If we don't agree, you got to bust out surveyors and you're going to have to go in through thousands of dollars 
of surveying. You're going to have to get everybody on the block involved. Everybody's going to have to sign off. There's going to have to be quick claim deeds. Uh, there's going to have to be maybe judicial decisions made. It's in everybody's interest to have the lot lines settled. And the way you determine that, the way you do that, is you have two neighbors sign off and agree. We agree where the lot line is. Now, when I put in my fence, I had to have the prior owner sign. So the prior owner and I have a sign agreement in the file, like here's, we agree on the lot line, right? New neighbors come in, not so fast, right? Let me say one last thing about the lot line issue. It is in, and this is gonna to get to the subsidiarity thing versus the customer service thing. It is in the interest of the community of the broad public to have properties be able to be transferred with the least amount of friction possible. In other words, if there is ongoing disputes over lot line locations, properties cannot transfer. And if every time someone comes into City Hall, there's a boundary dispute that is brought up as part of the permitting process, well, first of all, no one's gonna get any permits there's gonna be a lot of unpermitted work going on and people are not going to be able to invest in that neighborhood and transfer property. So it is in the city's interest, it is in the community's interest to have people agree on where the lot lines are to A, avoid the long, expensive and uh, you know encumbrance of having to go through a survey process or B, avoiding the ambiguity and the depression of property values and the friction that would come along in transferring property with not having clear property boundaries. The city's role in this process is making sure that everybody agrees on where their property line is. What I found out is that when my neighbor went in to get a permit for the fence, not only did the city give them the wrong setback, and, and that is just an issue of incompetence, and oh, we could go back and forth on that. I'm less than impressed. Uh, with the staff at City Hall and their competence, but that's another story. But beyond that, they also decided that they would look up for them and direct them as to where the property line actually was. The county maintains a GIS map, a Geographic Information Systems map. That map is a series of lines, and there's a uh, area of photograph projected uh, onto that. Anybody competent, anybody who has any experience, anybody who knows what this, anybody who stops and reads the disclaimer on the GIS map that they have to click OK on in order to open it up, will see that the GIS map is not an accurate representation of exactly where your lot line is. It's a really good representation of a block, of a neighborhood. It shows you where the properties are, all that but you can't draw a lot line from it, right? You can't determine within a foot or two or five even where the lot line is. And that's because the earth is curved, the drone or whatever, the plane that took the aerial photograph is, is gonna be projecting it in different ways, right? If you're too far over this way, it's gonna show uh, it a little bit further to the left. If you're a little bit farther this way, it'll show it a little bit further to the, the south or the north. If you go back three years, the 2019 GIS map showed the lot line to be about seven feet over on my neighbor's property. The 2021 update showed it about three feet on my property. And so when my neighbor went into City Hall, instead of asking them to go out and talk to their neighbor, me, 
and get a signed agreement on where the property line was so that we all have this understanding. My city staff uh, determined or offered to my neighbor that he actually owned three feet of my property, that the southern three feet of my lot was actually their lot. And they could construct a fence there without any friction at all. If we step back and try to understand how this happened, and understand this is wrong. I mean, the city has recognized now how badly they screwed up. Um, they issued, uh, you know, I'm gonna say, I feel bad for my neighbor. I don't feel bad for my neighbor. I think a good human being would feel bad for my neighbor. I should feel bad for my neighbor because my neighbor got kind of screwed in this whole thing. Yet I understand how it happened. You know, they should have been told that they needed to come out and, you know, talk to me and, and establish the lot line. Instead, uh, they were told something that was not true. The city has issued orders to correct this, has issued orders that the fence had to come down. There have been like repeated fines now issued. And it's been kind of an ongoing mess for a, a, a long time. The fence is still there. There were variances applied for, denied. There were permits rescinded and then uh, reapplied for and granted with conditions and then the conditions haven't been met and is on and on and on like th this long affair. I'm going to spare you all of those details because they're kind of nasty and I'm not, real, I'm not real proud of any of it. But the point that I want to dwell on here for a second is why this was done. Why were they given incorrect information? I think it's easy to say it was incompetence, right? And I think there was certainly an aspect of incompetence here. People who were administering a code, getting paid lots and lots of money to administer a code, who had never read the code, did not understand what it said, did not get why it said what it said, just were blanketly incompetent. But I think there's a deeper reason. I think this reason is really important to understand, and it comes to this notion of customer service. The standard that we have when you walk in the door is that we provide you quick service. We give you a smile. We are friendly. We offer to help you. When you look at the permit application that my neighbor actually filled out, like what they provide, they didn't provide any information at all. Uh, the, the application says you need to come in with a drawing. They didn't have a drawing. The application says you need to describe what you're doing. They didn't describe what they were doing. What happened is they came in told the people at City Hall what they wanted to do and they printed out a map for them, took a Sharpie, drew in roughly where the fence would go and sent them on their way in the mindset of being helpful. The standard that we judge our staff on is not whether they're accurate, whether they're right, whether they provide competent service, whether they help people in a way that expresses reality in the ordinance, whether, whether we accurately interpret the code and, and walk people through that process of what they would need to do to successfully navigate the rules of the city. What we do is we have a mindset where we judge them based on their level of service. Do we get complaints about them? Are they a burden to people wanting to apply things? Are they part of the bureaucracy, the red tape? Do they slow things down? Or are they able to keep things moving? Are they customer friendly, right? Are they pro-growth? Are they pro-business? Are they, they friendly to people when they walk in the door? 
is someone going to report back to the council that when I came in, they sent me out and made me go get uh, a drawing and, and go fill out the form? Or did they fill it out for me and take care of everything for me and make this process really smooth and easy? It's the latter that we value. And so many cities value this same thing. The fence provisions in the code are not designed to give a neighbor veto power over someone's fence. They're subsidiarity. They're designed to reconcile differences and have neighbors work together and be neighborly to figure things out. What should have happened is my neighbor should have gone into city hall and exactly like what happened to me when I went into city hall to build a fence, the staff at city hall said, you need to go out, a different staff from a different time said, you need to go out and get signatures from your neighbors. You need to go talk to your neighbors and uh, talk to them about your lot lines. And so I did. I went out and I had a form. I went to each of them. I talked with them about the fence I was gonna build. We walked it, we looked at it, we agreed where the lot line was. We talked about how the construction would impact their property. We talked about how it would be maintained. We, we worked out these things. And then I went back in with their signature and got the permit. That is what the city staff was supposed to have done. Now let's say that the city staff did that. And my neighbor said, you know, this is intolerable. I, I don't like this guy. We don't get along. He's not going to agree to my fence. You know, I, I don't want to go out and have to talk to him. I think then is when the, the, the idea of subsidiarity kicks in. Not just the idea that it is really a block level decision. It's really two neighbors deciding where that lot line is. But if they can't decide, that's when the city offers assistance. That's when the city, instead of being helpful by smoothing the path to approval for you, even if you're doing it in a way that is incompetent and wrong, switches over to being helpful by helping you reach an understanding. I've spoken many times about how I think our city halls need more staff. They actually need more people. I'm not one of these people who thinks, you get me talking about the federal government, you get me talking about the state government. I've got a lot of concerns about the size and the scope. But at local government level, I've never said that local government level needs to be cut. I think it needs to be dramatically increased in size. But if I were running a local government, I would not be hiring more planners, more engineers, more technical people. I would be hiring people that look a lot more like social workers a lot more like people versed in conflict resolution, a lot more uh, like people who could go out and talk to two neighbors who aren't getting along and have them each understand what their role and responsibility is in making this decision and walk them up to the point where they could together make a decision. That's what competent government looks like to me. That's what a mindset of being uh, customer friendly should look like when you recognize that the customer is not a retail customer in front of you, right? It's not the person standing in front of you who wants their permit now and wants to get it quickly with a smile and a, a pat on the back. Your customer is the community at large. I see this reflected again and again and again in our mindset at City Hall, right? 
when we're doing an infrastructure project, uh, we look at it in terms of growth. What can we get right now? What is the project that we're doing? Who's the developer that we can bring in the door with this project? We don't look at what our real customer is, which is the community as a whole. What kind of liability are we taking on long-term? What does that mean for our tax base? What does that mean for our tax rates? How much taxes are gonna have to go up on everybody in order to subsidize this one development? What type of liability are we taking on? How thin is our fire department stretch and our police department stretch by the strategy of growth that we have? We don't ask those questions. We don't look at those things because we have a mindset that our customer is the person in front of us, the transaction in front of us, the project in front of us. And that's not our customer. The customer is the broader community. The customer is the people who live throughout the city. And if we don't recognize that, what we do is we shortchange the whole in favor of the short-term, the expedient, the one, the individual. It's a little weird to be saying this because we do have a system that in many ways elevates the rights of the individual. And I recognize that, right? Like I recognize that you have property rights. I just said, my neighbor was on my property, building a fence on my property. That's the literal definition of trespass that's in the rules for a reason. And I'm not suggesting that any of those private property rights can be run over and, 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 and taken away uh, on the benefit of the whole just because it's at the local level and not the state level or the national level. But I am saying that when we have local government with a mindset that our role is customer service and the customer is the individual person standing in front of us, we are going to make bad decision after bad decision after bad decision. Subsidiarity is a really powerful thing and the fence line is just like the easiest implementation of it. But if we can't handle that one competently, if we can't do that one without screwing it up over and over and over, my gosh, how are we gonna do what we need to do, which is a bottom-up approach in every neighborhood? How are we gonna solve not just the chicken problem, but the, the, the problem of single-family homes? And, and how we allow more units to be built in our neighborhoods. I just heard from a city today where, you know, this has got to be done on a citywide basis and we're going to fight to the end and we're going to have this big drawn out battle where it's going to be one big fight. And I'm telling you, I'm watching this happen in real time and they're going to lose. They're going to lose. Because you can't have the subsidiary conversation at that level. It's got to be done with humans. It's got to be done with people. It's got to be done block by block by block. We have to have these conversations in this way. And I know there's a lot of you out there right now going, well, that, Chuck, that's not how government works. I know it's not how government works. It's how it needs to work. I know there's a lot of you out there saying, well, Chuck, that's a completely different system. Yeah, it is. It's a completely different system. The idea today that we look at the people in our city as customers and not as, uh, I mean, if, if we want to make it business terms, not as investors or stakeholders in the community. They're essentially shareholders of a corporation known as, in my case, the city of Brainerd. 
and that our job is not on behalf of the customer in front of us, but our job is on behalf of the shareholders of the overall corporation, everybody who's living within the city limits. We are missing something dramatic. I owe you all an update on the lawsuit. Uh, I'm going to do that in a future episode. If you're interested, um, strongtowns.org slash support reform. There have been some developments in the lawsuit this summer. We wrote all about it on the website, but if you're a podcast-only listener, I recognize that we haven't talked about it yet. I'll come back and do that in a future episode. Thanks for hanging with me here. I hope this wasn't too gratuitously personal, and I hope there was a an overall point to it that I ultimately got to. It's been a rough summer. <laughs> Because <laughs> I do not like to fight with my neighbors. I do not like to argue with planning commissions. I do not like to argue with city council members. I, I do not want to be at odds with my staff at City Hall. I want to be a good neighbor. I want to be a good friend. I want to be a, a, a good resident. And I, look, I've got lots of opportunity to live in other places. I've chosen to live in this city because I care deeply about it. And I want it to work and function. And it, it's, it's been a hurtful experience. But uh, it's getting better. Um, Hope things are better where you're at too. Thanks everybody for listening. Keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Take care. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Bill, 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 Bill. That's a story. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Oh, Magnet City! I like you. I like your vision of the of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit, Agenda 21. Yeah.